thank you all and thank Bill, thank Diana. So many people have um, put in so much time uh, and it's worked so well, I think, for all of us. And all for all of us, I should say, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. And I uh, want to begin with uh, oh, uh, some, some new, some uncollected poems, very few, and uh, then go back and uh, read, oh, starting at the beginning, really. But uh, uh, I was born in 1928, one year before the big crash, or the first big crash. And I want to read a uh, poem out of that time. I spent the school time of the year in Connecticut, and I saw the men on street corners selling pencils and apples. And then when I went up to uh, the farm and my grandparents, uh, I saw the men walking the roads, the tramps. This is called Bread and Butter. In 1936, when a man knocked on the farmhouse door and asked, please, for bread and butter, my grandmother Kate hacked him a slice from the loaf she'd baked on Wednesday and spread on it the pale Holstein butter she'd churned Friday morning. He thanked her, ma'am, and walked off down the road looking for help wanted, uh, for a sawmill starting up, or an outhouse to clean, for a village of buttered bread, a roof, and a fat wife. Fat wife would mean prosperity, you know. Uh, another, which is actually the most recent uh, that I've started, that I would dare to read aloud, uh, this is called Pieces. Now I am 80 years old and sit in my chair watching unpainted boards of the barn turn gold when late autumn sun rubs against them. The same barn I walked to as a boy to sit on a three-legged stool beside my grandfather while he milked his seven Holsteins and spoke Pieces he'd learned at school. Lawyer Blue, the bearded hen, an orphan lad from Boston. He recited a version of Casey at the bat where Casey hits a home run because my grandfather couldn't bear it to say that Casey had struck out. <laughs> if he saw me now, he would need to turn away. You might expect a certain amount of my writing lately has at least partly to do with old age. This is a poem called Alterations. My great-grandfather built the woodshed in 1865, cobbled together from clabbered with enough space for a five-hole outhouse and worn farm equipment. At middle age, when I moved here to stay, and snowdrifts piled tall in the yard, I carried kindling and firewood from shed through tool shed to kitchen range and Glenwood parlor stove without stepping outside. After a dozen years of hauling, I gave up and installed an oil furnace. The woodshed became a museum of rusted scythes 
Now that old age prospers, walking to the car over the driveway's ice turns perilous. Last fall, I hired a carpenter's crew to expand the woodshed into a garage with an electric door opening from inside, as tidy and decorative as a suburban Long Island. No wonder that uh, I backed out one afternoon without raising the door, smashing it to pieces like an idiot, like a man speeding into his 80th year. <laughs> I may read something new later on, but now I'd like to go way back uh, and read something I wrote in the, uh, in the 40s when I was uh, at college. I broke up with my uh, high school sweetheart. Uh, it happens a lot in sophomore year, whatever. And I wrote this poem. It's called Love is Like Sounds. Late snow fell this early morning of spring. At dawn, I rose from bed, restless, and looked out of my window to wonder if there the snow fell outside your bedroom and you watching. I played my game of solitaire. The cards came out the same the third time through the deck. The game was stuck. I threw the cards together and watched the snow that could not do but fall. Love is like sounds whose last reverberations hang on the leaves of strange trees, on mountains as distant as the curving of the earth where the snow hangs still in the middle of the air. I'm going to move to something several years later, and it was uh, an important poem for me. When I was writing most of my first book, uh, I had the absurd notion that before I started writing, I ought to know what I was going to say. Where, where did that come from? <laughs> but uh, with this poem in particular, I, I remember, and this was late 50s or so, uh, a phrase came into my head, I had no idea why, and I wrote it down. And when I looked at it, another phrase came out of it, and another, maybe two lines at some point. And it wasn't until I'd finished it that I had any notion of what I was writing about. And I was able uh, to do this quite a bit later. Sometimes I had a good inkling of what I was writing about. This one is called The Long River. The musk ox smells in his long head my boat coming. When I feel him there, intent, heavy, the oars make wings in the white night, and deep woods are close on either side where trees darken. I rode past towns in their black sleep to come here. I passed the northern grass and cold mountains. The musk ox moves when the boat stops in hard thickets. Now the wood is dark with old pleasures. 
there's a uh, love poem, again, a few years further along. This one is uh, called Gold. Pale gold of the walls, gold of the centers of daisies, yellow roses pressing from a clear bowl. All day we lay on the bed, my hand stroking, stroking the deep gold of your thighs and your back. We slept and woke, entering the golden room together, lay down in it breathing quickly, then slowly again, caressing and dozing, your hands sleepily touching my hair now. We made in those days tiny identical rooms inside our bodies, which the men who uncover our graves will find in a thousand years, shining and whole. One I have been looking forward to, to reading to you, and um, say, I, I decided definitely to do it uh, when I heard Peter's farming poems. I have a long poem about sheep, but I don't want to read it. He knows so much more about sheep than I do. Uh, this one is my cow poem, uh, and it's called Great Day in the Cow's House. In the dark tie-up, seven huge Holsteins lower their heads to feed, chained loosely to old saplings with whitewashed bark still on them. They are long dead. They survive in the great day that cancels the successiveness of creatures. Now she stretches her wrinkly neck, her turnip eye rolls in her skull. She sucks up breath, and stretching her long mouth mid-chew, she expels. My friends tell me it's my best line. <laughs> Sweet bellowers, enormous and interchangeable, your dolorous ululations swell out barnsides, fill spaces inside haymows, resound down valleys, moves of revenant cattle, shake ancient timbers, and timbers still damp with sap. Now it is warm, late June. The old man strokes white braids of milk strip, strip, from ruminant beasts with hip bones like tent poles, the rough black and white hanging crudely upon them. Now he tilts back his head to recite a poem about an old bachelor who loves a chicken named Susan. His voice grows loud, with laughter and emphasis in the silent tie-up where old noises gather. Now a tail lifts to waterfall, huge and yellow, or an enormous flop presses out. Then milking, he lifts with his hoe a leather-hinged board to scrape manure onto the pile underneath in April, carted for garden and field corn. The cows in their house decree the seasons. 
spring seeds corn, summer haze, autumn fences, and winter saws ice from Eagle Palm, stretching it uphill to Packing it away in sawdust through August parch and Indian summer, great chunks of the pond float in the milkshed tank. Pull down the spider webs, whitewash the tie up. In the great day, there is also the odor of poverty and anxiety over the agricultural inspector's visit. They are long dead, they survive in the great day of August, to convene afternoon and morning for milking. Now they graze ragged mountain, steep sugar bush, little mountain valleys and brooks, high clovery meadows, slate-colored low-bush blueberries. When grass is sweetest, they are slow to leave it. Late afternoons, he spends hours searching he knows their secret places. He listens for one peal on a, of a cowbell carried on a breeze. He calls, kibosh, 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 kibosh. He climbs dry creek beds and old logging roads or struggles up needle banks, pulling on fir branches. He hacks with his jackknife a chunk of spruce gum oozing from a bark and softens it in his cheek pouch for chewing. Then he pushes through Hanlock's gate to join the Society of Holsteins. They look up from grass as if mildly surprised and file immediately downward. In late winter, one after one, pink-white udders dry out as new calves swell their mother's bellies. Now these vessels of hugeness bear, one after one, skinny-limbed small Holsteins, eager to suck the bounty of freshmen. Now he climbs to the barn in boots and overalls, two sweaters, a cloth cap, and somebody's old woolen coat. Now he parts the calf from its mother after feeding and strips the other clean to rejoice in the sweet, frothing tonnage of milk. Now in April, when snow remains on the north side of boulders and sugar maples and green starts up from wet earth in open places the sun touches, he unchains the cows one morning after milking and lopes past them to open the pasture gate. Now he returns whooping and slapping their buttocks to set them to pasture again, and they are free to wander eating all day long. Now these wallowing big-eyed calf makers, bone rafters for leather, awkward arcs, cud-chewing lethargic moors, roll their enormous heads, trot, gallop, bounce, cavort, stretch, leap, and bellow, as if everything heavy and cold vanished at once 
and cow spirits floated, weightless as clouds in the great day's windy April. When his neighbor discovers him at 87, his head leans into the side of his last Holstein. She has kicked the milk pad over. She has kicked the milk pail over and blue milk drains through floorboards onto the manure pile in the great day. The great day that cancels the successiveness of creatures comes from Meister Eckhart, actually. So this is a blend of Meister Eckhart and Holstein cattle. I used to move for my grandchildren uh, when they were little, and I was called Grampy Cow for, for many years. I'm going to read a poem. Again, they seem to be following each other pretty much, uh, but I hope remaining different uh, from each other. This uh, is called Mr. Wakefield on Interstate 90. And Mr. Wakefield uh, speaks the poem. Now I will abandon the root of my life as my shadowy wives abandon me, taking the children. I will stop somewhere. I will park in a summer street where the days tick like metal in the stillness. I will rent the room over Bert's modern barbershop where the two-let sign leans in the plate glass window. Or I will buy the brown bungalow for sale I will work 40 hours a week clerking at the paint store. On Fridays, I will cash my paycheck at Six Rivers Bank and stop at Harvey's Market and talk with Harvey. Walking on Maple Street, I will speak to everyone. At basketball games, I will cheer for my neighbor's sons. I will watch my neighbor's daughters grow up, marry, raised children, the joints of my fingers will stiffen. There will be no room inside me for other places. I will attend funerals regularly and weddings. I will chat with the mailman when he comes on Saturdays. I will shake my head when I hear of the florist who drops dead in the greenhouse over a flat of pansies. I spoke with her only yesterday. When lawyer elopes with babysitter, I will shake my head. When Harvey's boy enlists in the Navy, I will wave goodbye at the trailways depot with the others. I will vote Democratic. I will vote Republican. I will applaud the valedictorian at graduation and wish her well as she goes away to the university and weep as she goes away. I will live in a steady joy. I will exult in the ecstasy of my concealment. There's a wonderful short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called, uh, not Mr. Wakefield, but Mr. Wakefield. He drops out of his life in the story. I'm not going to try to give you the plot, but that was an inspiration.
for uh, this poem. The poem is quite different. It's not set in the 19th century, but wouldn't it? Uh, I would uh, like to be now a, uh, an enormously uh, different poem, like uh, somebody on a television talk show. I can say, and now for something completely different. continual problem with finding the right page. This one is my poem about poetry readings. Uh, it's called To a Waterfowl because uh, there was a famous 19th century American poem called that. In my poem, I have a water waterfowl in the first line only. Uh, it's uh, Women with hats like the rear ends of pink ducks applauded you, my poems. These are the women whose husbands I meet on airplanes, who close their briefcases and ask, what are you in? I look in their eyes. I tell them I am in poetry. <laughs> and their eyes fill with anxiety and with little tears. Oh, yeah, I say, developing an interest in clouds. <laughs> My wife, she likes that sort of thing. <laughs> I guess maybe I'd better watch my grammar. <laughs> I leave them in the airports watching their grammar and take a limousine to the Women's Goodness Club where I drink Harvey's Bristol Cream with their wives and eat chicken salad with capers with little tomato wedges, and I read them The Erotic Crocodile and Meeting You. Ah, when I have concluded the dis disbursement of my sonorities, crooning, you know, high on thy thigh, I cry high, and so forth. They spank their wide hands, they smile like jello, and they say, <laughs> My goodness, Mr. Hall, but you certainly do have an imagination. <laughs> Thank you indeed, I say. It brings in the bacon. <laughs> but now, my poems, now I have returned to the motel, returned to Lady Del Retour of the Holiday Inn, naked, lying on the bed, watching Godzilla Masak's Mount Fuji, addressing my poems, feeling superior, and drinking bourbon from a flask disguised to look like a transistor radio. <laughs> and, and what about you? You laughing. You in the blue jeans, laughing at your mother who wears hats, and at your father who rides airplanes with a briefcase watching his grandma. Will you ever be old and dumb like your creepy parents? Not you, not you, not you, not you, not you. <laughs> at the time I wrote the poem, every college audience at least was a hundred or a few hundred people, all of whom were wearing blue jeans. But I quit teaching and um, went back to live in middle age at my grandparents' farm, I, uh, I didn't go alone. 
I had uh, married uh, Jane Kenyon, who was a wonderful poet, and she loved solitude. She had grown up in Michigan, but when she saw the farm and the hills, the landscape, uh, the church my uh, family always went to, she said, uh, well, we, we, stayed, we were staying for a year uh, on leave without pay just to uh, babysit the house. And we thought maybe sometime we'd buy it and go there for summers. By October, Jane was saying that she would chain herself in the root cellar rather than go back. Uh, so I, uh, I wrote a uh, uh, letter of resignation to the Department of English and they spoiled my fun by rejecting it and giving me a, another year's leave. But my, uh, my mind was totally made up. And for 20 years, Jane and I lived there, uh, writing poems in separate rooms and then occasionally giving poems to each other. It was a marvelous, a marvelous life. I, I had enjoyed teaching, but I enjoyed writing all day, even more. And she enjoyed her solitude, her flowers, and working every morning on her own poems. Then in uh, 1994, uh, Jane developed leukemia, and we uh, lived with it for 14, 15 months. Uh, she had a bone marrow transplant, and then one day it, the leukemia returned, and she died. I wrote a, uh, in 95, in April 95, I wrote uh, a long series of small poems about the time of her illness. And I want to read one of those now, and then uh, a poem or two of grief that came a bit later. This, this, in this uh, early section, I don't, I don't say I, I say he, and I say her or Jane. Uh, when I first wrote it, it looked like a palm tree forest of the letter I. He hovered beside Jane's bed, solicitous, solicitous. What can I do? It must be unbearable while she suffered her private hurts to see his worried face looming above her, always anxious to do something when there was exactly nothing to do. Inside him, some four-year-old understood that if he was good, thoughtful, considerate, beyond reproach, perfect, she would not leave him. Well, she left him. Uh, she wanted. I, uh, I, the next three or four years, I didn't write about any other subject. Uh, I, uh, wrote uh, uh, poems about her, her dying or her not being there. And then one day I uh, decided, I, something, I don't know, something happened. Uh, a nurse friend of ours from Seattle where she had her bone marrow transplant uh, told me that she was pregnant for the first time. And of course I thought the way one always does after death, I can't wait to die. <gasps> You can't tell her anymore. So I decided to write her a letter. And for about a year, I wrote her letters regularly. And I'm not the first one to do that. I don't. But they were 
letters of grief to Jane, but they were also poems. So I worked on them every day. I didn't begin a new one. I revised an old one for the most part. And for two hours, perhaps, by writing on the poems, I, I, felt, I felt good. Uh, then, after my session, I had 22 hours to live through until I could feel well again, really, uh, writing about her, as if to her. This is the first of the letters, letter with no address. Then there were letters in October, etc., uh, until it, for a year. Uh, this letter for no address, and as of any personal letter, it names names without explaining who they are. I can say, Betty, who is your sister, as you know. <laughs> I don't. I just say Betty. Uh, and actually, I don't. No, no, no Betty. Uh, letter, with, uh, letter with no address. Your daffodils rose up and collapsed in their yellow bodies on the hillside garden, above the bricks you laid out in sand, squatting with pants pegged and face masked like a beekeeper's against the black flies. Buttercups circle the planks of the old wellhead this May, while your silken gardener's body withers or molds in the proctor graveyard. I drive and talk to you crying and come back to this house to talk to your photographs. There's news to tell you. Maggie Fisher's pregnant. I've carried myself like an egg at Abigail's birthday party a week after you died as three-year-olds bounced uproarious on a mattress. Joyce and I met for lunch at the mall and strolled weepily through Sears and B. Dalton. Today, it's four weeks since you lay on our painted bed and I closed your eyes. Yesterday, I cut irises to set in a pitcher on your grave. Today, I brought a carafe to fill it with fresh water. I remember bone pain, vomiting, delirium. I remember pond afternoons. My routine is established. Coffee, the globe, breakfast, writing you this letter at my desk. When I go to bed and to sleep after baseball, Gus follows me into the bedroom as he used to follow us. Most of the time, he flops down in the parlor with his head on his paws. Once a week, I drive to Tilton to see Dick and Nan. Nan doesn't understand much, but she knows you're dead. I feel her fretting. The tune of Dick and me talking seems to console her. You know now whether the soul survives death or you don't. When you were dying, you said you didn't fear punishment. We never dared to speak of paradise. At 5 a.m., when I walk outside, mist lies thick on hayfields. By 8, the air is clear, cool, sunny, with the pale yellow light of mid-May. Kearsarge rises huge and distinct, each birch and blossom visible. 
To the west, the waters of Eagle Pond waver and flash through puddles just leafing out. Always the weather, writing its book of the world, returns you to me. Ordinary days were best when we worked over poems in our separate rooms. I remember watching you gaze out the January window into the garden of snow and ice, your face wrapped as you imagined burgundy lilies. Your presence in this house is almost as enormous and painful as your absence. Driving home from Tilton, I remember how you cherished that vista with its center, the red door of a farmhouse against green fields. Are you past pity? If you have consciousness now, if something like you has something like consciousness, I doubt you remember the, you remember the last days. I play them over and over. I lift your wasted body onto the commode, your arms looped around my neck, aiming your bony bottom so that it will not bruise on a rail. Faintly, you repeat, Mama, Mama. Three times today, I drove to your grave. Sometimes, coming back home to our circular driveway, I imagine you've returned before me, bags of groceries upright in the back of the salab, its trunk lid delicately raised, as if proposing an encounter, dog fashion, with my Honda. Jane would have enjoyed that. Last joke. But, uh, I'd like to read, oh, the first poem I read you from the book was Iambic Pentana, without rhyme. But uh, my first book was almost entirely rhymed, I have pentameter, and I seldom uh, read any of those poems anymore. I don't like them. It's not the meter. Uh, I love metrical poetry, and had not written it, but varieties of free verse. I had not written it for a long time. And then, uh, a couple of years after uh, Jane died, I... Uh, began to write metrically again. So I, I'm uh, on the I began to write in stanzas and uh, rhyme, and I, I didn't know why I was doing it all of a sudden again. I loved doing it. And then I realized I'd been spending years reading Thomas Hardy and some of the wonderful poems he wrote after his wife died. And I think it came from there. But uh, I don't think I imitated it, except perhaps in making strange stanzas. The first one uh, is called, uh, first one I'll read, is called Summer Kitchen. In June's high light, she stood at the sink with a glass of wine and listened for the bobolink and crushed garlic in late sunshine. I watched her cooking from my chair. She pressed her lips together, reached for kitchenware, and tasted sauce.
from her fingertips. It's ready now. Come on, she said. You light the candle. We ate and talked and went to bed and slept. It was a miracle. I want to read another one of these metrical rhymed poems. This one is called The Wish, and it was really the last in, in this series. The Wish. I keep her weary ghost inside me. Oh, let me go, I hear her crying. Deep in your dark you want to hide me, and so perpetuate my dying. I can't undo the grief that you Weep by the stone where I am lying. Oh, let me go. By work and women half distracted, I endure the day and sleep at night to watch her dying reenacted when the cold dawn descends like twilight. How can I let this dream forget her white withdrawal from my sight and let her go? Her body, as I watch, grows smaller. Her face recedes, her kiss is colder. Watching her disappear, I call her, come back, as I grow old and older. While somewhere deep in the catch of sleep, I hear her cry as I reach to hold her. Oh, let me go. This one is called Distressed Haiku. Um, they are, they resemble haiku, but they follow no rules at all. That's why they are distressed, like uh, uh, some ill-made piece of clothing. Uh, in a week or ten days, the snow and ice will melt from Cemetery Road. I'm coming, don't move. You think that their dying is the worst thing that could happen? Then they stay dead. Will Hall ever write lines that do anything but whine and complain? The mouse rips the throat of the lion. The Boston Red Sox win a hundred straight games and the dead return. There's, uh, I'm going to move away from that subject for a while. And um, this is um, a, uh, it's a, another poem about old age, but I wrote it when I was uh, 50 or so. Um, and it's called, uh, I'm sorry, I keep doing. I was looking at, I was thinking of the title of the poem as if it were um, the uh, page number. <laughs> Because it is called On Reaching the Age of 200. When I awoke on the morning of my 200th birthday, 
I expected to be consulted by supplicants like the Sibyl at Kumi. I could tell them something. Instead, it was the usual thing. Dried grapefruit for breakfast, Mozart all morning, interrupted by bees' wings, and making love with a woman 181 years old. At my birthday party, I blew out 200 candles, one at a time, taking naps after each 25. <laughs> then I went to bed at 5.30 on the day of my 200th birthday and slept and dreamed of a house no bigger than a flea's house with 200 rooms in it and in each of the rooms a bed and in each of the 200 beds me sleeping. I have a, a poem I'm going to read, which is called Woolworths. And when I was uh, collecting, putting this collection together, I thought of changing the name to Walmart. Uh, and I tried, but uh, it had to be Woolworths. For those of you who are young enough, let me tell you that Woolworths was a five-and-dime uh, uh, miscellaneous store where at the beginning you would pick things up for a nickel or ten cents. In, in my lifetime, it raised a little bit. But uh, Woolworths, I can't remember when Woolworths last existed, but uh, I wrote this poem, and it still did. Woolworths. My whole life has led me here. Daisies made out of resin, hairnets and motor oil, Barbie dolls, green garden chairs, and 41 brands of deodorant. 300 years ago, I was hedging and ditching in Devon. I lacked freedom of worship and freedom to trade molasses for rum for slaves for molasses. I will sail to Massachusetts to build the kingdom of heaven on earth, the side of a hill swung open. It was Woolworths. <laughs> I followed this vision to Boston. <laughs> I'm going to uh, read one more from this book and then the, uh, a, a new poem, which I'll speak of. This one is called uh, Affirmation. Uh, To grow old is to lose everything. Aging, everybody knows it. Even when we're young, we glimpse it sometimes and nod our heads when a grandfather dies. Then we row for years on the midsummer pond, ignorant and content. But a marriage that began without harm scatters into debris on the shore and a friend from school drops cold on a rocky strand. 
If a new love carries us past middle age, our wife will die at her strongest and most beautiful. New women come and go, all go. The pretty lover who announces that she is temporary is temporary. The bold woman, middle-aged against our old age, sinks under an anxiety she cannot withstand. Another friend of decades estranges itself in words that pollute 30 years. Let us stifle under mud at the pond's edge and affirm that it is fitting and delicious to lose everything. Now, actually, I'm going to uh, read you a poem that uh, I have never read aloud before. Unfortunately, it needs probably quite a bit of introduction. Uh, yesterday at the panel, I talked about uh, recently selling a poem that uh, I had been working on for a year and a half and that I had uh, you know, counted the lines, um, the, the revisions, and there are 158. So I've decided to read it to you. Uh, years ago, I uh, wrote a poem called Baseball in which I pretended to try to explain baseball to a German Dada artist. Kurt Schwitters was greatest with his collages, putting together inside a frame, or sometimes a frame with depth, so, oh, bits of newspaper, maybe some paint here and there, uh, odd blocks of wood, uh, driftwood, uh, and uh, making something sort of insane and beautiful at the same time. And I wanted to do this in poetry. So I, I kept talking to Kurt Schwitters to explain baseball. I mean, he died in 1948 in England. He never recorded a painting on baseball in his life. And have, have myself constantly distracted and start talking about Alexander the Great or whatever. He made collage, uh, and it's of course instantaneously apparent. I'm trying to write collage, and because it's the literary art, part after part. Uh, in the, uh, the old poem, which I'm following uh, in a phrase, I, I called uh, Jane Jennifer, I called myself KC, um, capital letters, for KC at the back. And uh, here I uh, call uh, my friend Linda Bowen. It is called Meatloaf. No, I don't want my... I can't read with my reading glasses anymore. <laughs> Meatloaf. Twenty-five years ago, Kurt Schwitters, I tried to instruct you in baseball, but kept getting distracted, gluing bits and pieces of world history alongside personal anecdote instead of explicating baseball's habits. I was KC for KC in stanzas of nine times nine times nine. Last year, the Sox were ahead by 12 in May, by four in August, collapsed as usual, then won the series. Jennifer, who loved baseball, enjoyed the game on TV, but fell asleep by the fifth inning. She died 12 years ago 
and thus would be 60 now, watching baseball as her hair turned white. I see her tending her hollyhocks, gazing west at Eagle Pond, walking to the porch, favoring her right knee. I live alone with baseball each night, but without poems. One of my friends called baseball almost poetry. No more vowels carrying images leap suddenly from my excited, unwitting mind and purple big pen. As he aged, Auden said that methods of dry farming may also grow crops. When Jennifer died, I had nightmares that she left me for someone else. I bought condoms looking for affairs. As distracting as Red Sox baseball, and even more subject to failure. There was love, there was comfort, always something was wrong or went wrong later, her adultery, my neediness, until, after years, I found Lauren. When I was named Poet Laureate, the kids of Danbury School painted baseballs on a kitchen chair for me with two lines from Casey at the Bath. In fall, I lost 60 pounds and lost poetry. I studied only law and order. My son took from my house the eight-sided Mossberg 22 my father gave me when I was 12. Buy two pounds of cheap fat hamburger so the meatloaf will be sweet. Chop up a big onion, add leaves of basil, Tabasco, Newspaper ads, soy sauce, quail eggs, driftwood, tomato ketchup, and library paste. Bake for 10 hours at 35 degrees. When pitchers hit the batter's head, Kurt, it is called a beanball. The hitter takes first base. After snowdrifts melted in April, I gained pounds back, and with Lauren flew to Paris eating all day, croissant, warm, crisp, and buttery, then baguette camembert, then boeuf bourguignon with bottles of red wine. Afternoons we spent in the Luxembourg gardens or in museums, the Marmottin, the Pompidou, the Orangerie, the Musée de la Vie Romantique, the Louvre, the Dorsay, the Jeux de Pomme, the Musée Maillot, the Petit Palais. When the great Ted Williams died, his son detached his head and froze it in a Texas depository. In summer, enduring my dotage, I try making this uh, waterless farm, meatloaf with many ingredients. In August, Lauren climbs Mount Kearsarge, where I last clambered in middle age while I sit in my idle body in the car in the cool parking lot revising these lines for Kurt Schwitters counting nine syllables on fingers discolored by old age and felt pens my stanzas like ball players sent down to triple A too slow for the bigs One thing I referred to, but I, I didn't warn you about, nine times nine times nine, 
It is uh, nine stanzas, each of which has nine lines, each of which has nine syllables. And that's my uh, year and a half work on a fourth. Yeah, thank you all very much. Thank you very much.